Our text today is Luke chapter 19, verse 28 through 44. If you have a Bible with you, I'd invite you to go ahead and make your way there. And we'll read the passage here in just a few moments. And a message entitled, Exalt King Jesus. By way of review, in Luke chapter 19, we focused on the encounter of Jesus when he came to Jericho with a tax collector named Zacchaeus and a focus on how Jesus changes lives. A person can have everything that the world has to offer and still be lost. And Jesus seeks people who need what he has to offer and to give them what ultimately matters. And all who repent and believe in Jesus will be saved by the grace of God. We encountered that theme verse that we've been looking for all the way through the Gospel of Luke in chapter 19 and verse 10, where the Bible says that the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. Then in Luke 19, verse 11 through 27, we learn from a parable that is about the kingdom of God. It's a parable about stewardship and how we use what's been entrusted to us by God the Father for the sake of Jesus Christ and how we will ultimately be rewarded for our faithfulness to him as we live our lives in the kingdom. Now we're going to read this passage before us in, our, in its entirety in just a few moments, but I want to draw your attention first to verse 28. When he had said these things, referring to Jesus, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. This is an important turning point because Jesus has already told us back in Luke chapter 13 and verse 33, nevertheless, I must go on my way today and tomorrow and the day following, for it cannot be that a prophet should perish away from Jerusalem. Jerusalem, a city of significance, both in biblical history and prophecy, a city located about 37 miles to the east of the Mediterranean Sea and about 24 miles to the west of the Jordan River. Jerusalem, a city that was protected by natural ravines on the sides, a city that sits some 2,575 feet above sea level. God, after all, had made a covenant with Israel that encompassed the city of Jerusalem. In Isaiah 54 and verse 10, where the Bible says, "...though the mountains be shaken and the hills be removed." Yet my unfailing love for you will not be shaken, nor my covenant of peace be removed, says the Lord, who has compassion on you. That covenant was pointing, of course, to the finished work of Jesus as the Messiah, and then even further into the future, toward the new Jerusalem and the fulfillment of God's eternal kingdom and our privilege to be citizens of that kingdom through faith in Christ. The relationship of Jesus to Jerusalem is an important one in the Bible. The exact number of times that he was in the city is impossible to know with certainty. Uh, Jesus was taken to Jerusalem as an infant when Mary and Joseph took him to the temple to fulfill their obligation of presenting the child to God. Another time was when he was 12 years old and they visited the temple during the Passover. He and his family did along with others. He also came near to Jerusalem when he was baptized by John the Baptist. And we know that he spent some time there. 
He was there for Jewish feast and evidently taught in the temple precincts. The Gospel of John indicates that Jesus attended several Passover feasts as well as the Feast of Booths and the Feast of Dedication. John's Gospel places Jesus in Jerusalem five different times during his three-year public ministry. But there's something that's just a little bit different about Luke 19. The reason that I say that it's different is that it's filled with significance related to its timing. The life of Jesus was now intently focused on his destiny. What is a destiny? Well, the idea of a destiny comes from a Latin word which means that which has been firmly established. To say it more plainly, a destiny is a life purpose. The life purpose and the destiny of Jesus was to come so that he might seek and to save that which was lost. And to do so, it required that he go to the cross and be crucified for our sins, be buried, and be raised from the dead. Peter wrote about God's plan for our redemption, and he spoke of it in terms of both the plan of God from eternity past, as well as the application of grace to our lives as we believe. Listen to how Peter wrote in 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 18. He said, For you know that you were redeemed from your empty way of life, inherited from your ancestors, not with perishable things like silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of an unblemished and spotless lamb. Now listen to verse 20. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was revealed in these last times to you. Through him, you believe in God who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. So Peter says the destiny of Jesus was set forth before the foundation of the world. We're talking here about the son of God. God is one in essence and he is three in person. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, co-equal and co-eternal. There was never a time when Jesus was not, but in this moment, he's now come to earth. He's fulfilled his life uh, purpose. As he goes to the cross, he's going to secure our salvation by giving his life for us on the cross. So here's Jesus coming into Jerusalem on what we commonly refer to as the triumphal entry. We typically only hear it on Palm Sunday, that Sunday before Easter. That's often the time that this text is preached. But it marks the beginning of Passion Week. Passion Week being the week in which Jesus, in fulfillment of prophecy, is doing what he came to do. But I also want you to make a connection here because this is sort of the fulfillment of the travel narrative, the journey narrative that began back in chapter 9 and verse 51. Jesus has been making his way there, and now about nine months have passed. And you can think about this moment as the crescendo, because it's moving toward the grand finale of his destiny. Luke chapter 19, I'll pick up reading in verse 29. As he approached Bethpage and Bethany at the place called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of the disciples and said, go into the village ahead of you. As you enter it, you will find a young donkey tied there on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. 
If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? Say this, the Lord needs it. So those who were sent uh, left and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the young donkey, its owner said to them, why are you untying the donkey? The Lord needs it, they said. Then they brought it to Jesus, and after throwing their clothes on the donkey, they helped Jesus get on it. As he was going along, they were spreading their clothes on the road. Now he came near the path down the Mount of Olives, and the whole crowd of the disciples began to praise God joyfully with a loud voice for all the miracles they had seen. Verse 38, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest heaven. Some of the Pharisees from the crowd told him, teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if they were to keep silent, the stones would cry out. And now for verse 41 and following. As he approached and saw the city, he wept for it, saying, if you knew this day, what would bring peace? But now it is hidden from your eyes. For the days will come on you when your enemies will build a barricade around you, surround you, and hem you in on every side. They will crush you and your children among you to the ground, and they will not leave one stone on another in your midst because you did not recognize the time when God visited you. I believe the triumphal entry was a major event in history for the reason that Jesus was now publicly laying claim to his role as the Messiah and as the King. Up to this point, Jesus had not sought to be openly called Messiah, but he's about to not only allow it, but even to encourage it. And everything about the days to follow would draw attention to his identity. I want to highlight what it means that Jesus Christ is king. He's referenced here as king in this passage that we just read. And then I want to draw three points of application from the text on how we can exalt him as king. You might remember that in the Old Testament, the offices of prophet, priest, and king are presented. Jesus is the fulfillment of and the embodiment of the roles of prophet, priest, and king. A prophet would speak the word of God to the people of God. They would both foretell in terms of what was still to come in the future because God would give them direction and the words of what to say. And they would also foretell and say, thus saith the Lord. And people rightly referred to Jesus as a prophet. And not only does he speak the word of God, but he is the word of God. He's the embodiment of the very word that he speaks. Priests served as mediators between the people and God. They would offer sacrifices uh, in the temple and they would represent the people to God. And the scripture says in 1 Timothy 2 and verse 5 that there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. Unlike the earthly priests who were sinful and had to be forgiven of their own sins, Jesus, as the sinless Lamb of God, came to be the high priest and to offer himself as the perfect sacrifice for our sins, the once and for all sacrifice on our behalf. 
kings ruled over God's people as well as other earthly rulers that were in place ruled over their subjects. And when we think about a king, a king has all authority and is responsible for the people who are under them. Jesus, as the king, has all authority in heaven and on earth. Not only does he have all authority, but he has the name that is above every name. Now, now watch this. Don't miss this point. All of these roles were distinct in the Bible. A prophet was a prophet. A priest was a priest. A king was a king. Or to say it another way, a prophet was not a priest was not a king. Yet Jesus completely fulfills them all at once and perfectly does so in himself. We are to exalt King Jesus. And let's draw three points of application from the text about how we can practically do that. The first point of application is that we should do what King Jesus says. Verse 28 through 36. We have Jesus coming from Jericho, and now he's nearing Jerusalem. And I can just picture in my mind's eye all these people who are traveling with Jesus. The road's dusty, and and there's kind of a cloud of dust that's being kicked up along the path. And the disciples are with him. Maybe there's some onlookers that are kind of trailing along, and, and Jesus is out front just a little bit. He's leading the way. He comes to this place that's the area of Bethpage on the slope of the Mount of Olives. And he stops. The reason that he stops is so that the way could be prepared for him him to enter the city as the Messiah. You can almost feel the the momentum that's building up in uh, the Gospel of Luke. And it's building up toward this moment. And Luke's account of Jesus' entry into Jerusalem brings us to a transition point. So Jesus sends two of his disciples on ahead. Uh, Their assignment was to go into the village that was opposite of them and find a colt that no one had ever sat on and bring him to Jesus to ride on. Uh, The request was in fulfillment of prophecy. Zechariah 9 and verse 9 and 10 foretold that the Messiah would ride on a donkey. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and having salvation, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Words that were given by God hundreds of years before this moment that we're now reading about. The owners were to be told when they asked what was going on that the Lord had need of the animal. Evidently, they were going to understand that and cooperate with it, with the request And here is Jesus on that mission to seek and to save the lost. Now, what did the disciples do when Jesus told them to go and do this? They did what Jesus said to do. They answered the call to obey the commandment to go and do this. And I think of other examples in the scripture where people did the same. Think about John the Baptist. John the Baptist, the forerunner of Jesus who carried out the mission that God gave him. He proclaimed a a message of repentance in anticipation of the arrival of Jesus. And it's said of John the Baptist in John chapter 1, there was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify about the light so that all might believe through him. 
He was not the light, but he came to testify about the light. And the true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. John, fulfilling his destiny, fulfilling his purpose in announcing the light who had arrived. I think also of the disciples who carried out the mission that that Jesus gave to them. John chapter 20, Jesus said to them, peace be with you as the father has sent me. I also send you. And after saying this, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. So we find this pattern of people who answer the call to trust in Jesus, to do what he says to do and to fulfill their purpose. And Jesus sends us And we've been entrusted with the precious message of the gospel. We have been empowered with the Holy Spirit. And Luke emphasizes the importance of walking by faith. And Jesus has to be received or rejected. There is no middle ground. And walking by faith means that we're going to completely rely on Jesus who came to give himself for us. And because of that, we're going to want to do what he says to do. So let me ask you this question. What is your destiny? What is your purpose? What is your life's calling? Now, obviously, the details of this are going to be a little bit different for all of us. We have different vocations. We come from different backgrounds. We have different spiritual gifts. We have different life experiences. Our family makeups are unique. But yet collectively, when we are saved by grace through faith, our purpose is to do what King Jesus says to do and to make him known. That's our purpose. To give glory to God in whatever area that life of life that God has placed us in, to say, God, I want to honor and exalt King Jesus. I want to do what he says to do. I'm going to live my life in a way that points other people to him. And in doing that, I'm doing what he's told me to do. And you, in turn, will do what he has told you to do. Now, Jesus could have entered the city in any fashion that he wanted to. He could have come as a conquering general. But he came on a colt. That was customary for royalty. Uh, But he was coming as the prince of peace. Adam Clark said this entry into Jerusalem has been termed the triumph of Christ. It was indeed the triumph of humility over pride and worldly grandeur, of poverty over affluence, and of meekness and gentleness over rage and malice. We can exalt King Jesus by doing what King Jesus says to do. Then there's a second point of application. We are to praise who King Jesus is. Now our focus turns to verse 37 through verse 43. When Jesus comes riding into Jerusalem, he was riding into a context where Rome was dominating the world, the known world at that time. Pomp and circumstance would have been par for the course. I mean, they did everything with grandeur. The idea of a victorious, conquering king entering a city was well known in that time. Typically, a victorious king would come into the city escorted by citizens of his kingdom along with an army and an entourage. 
As he entered, songs would be sung in praise and acclamation of the conqueror. There would be symbols of victory and authority. And finally, he would enter into whatever the temple was in the city that he was coming into and make a sacrificial offering to the gods that they ascribed to. And as I read, within the Roman Empire, there was something known as the Roman Triumph. It was a civil ceremony and a religious rite that was used to celebrate the success of a military commander who had led the Roman forces to victory. The general would reportedly wear a crown of laurel. He would also wear an all-purple, gold-embroidered toga, and he would paint his face red. He would enter into a city on a chariot that was drawn by four horses, go through the streets with his army, with his captives, with the spoils of war, and then they would make a sacrifice to the god of Jupiter. It was all quite a spectacle, as you might imagine. But friends, here we have a distinct contrast. If we miss the contrast, we miss a significant part of this narrative. King Jesus enters into the city in a humble manner. He's undoubtedly identifying himself now as the Messiah. I love the way Clarence McCartney put it. He said, how strange a contrast to the triumphal entry of ancient warriors and conquerors into the cities which they had taken. This time, no wall was broken down for entry. This time, no hero was standing in the war chariot, driving down the lane of of cheering subjects past smoking altars, followed by captive kings and princes in chains. Instead of that, just a meek and lowly man riding upon the foal of a donkey. I believe that his choice of the donkey pointed to his life in his ministry. Of course, it identified him with the royal line of David and David himself. He's on a beast of burden But further than that, I think it speaks to the humility and the gentleness of Jesus. You understand that the life of Jesus embodied humility and gentleness. He was the definition of power under control. I love the way Dane Ortland in his book, Gentle and lowly, the heart of Christ for sinners and sufferers puts it. He said, whatever's crumbling around you in your life, wherever you feel stuck, this remains undeflectable. The heart of Jesus for you, the real you, his heart is gentle and lowly. So go to him. That place in your life where you feel most defeated, he is there. He lives there. He's right there. And his heart is for you. Not on the other side of it, but in the darkness. He is gentle and lowly. Your anguish is his home. Go to him. And then he writes, if you knew his heart, you would. People line the streets as Jesus came down that road that goes down to the Mount of Olives at the southeastern corner of the city. They threw their own clothes on the colt. They threw their 
close out on the road. And they began to rejoice and to praise God. And they cried out, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord in verse 38. This is a quotation from Psalm 118. The significance that it is, a, is that it is a kingly reference because it was a phrase in the Psalms directed to the king as he approached the temple. Then they added peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Does that sound familiar to you? It should. The host of the angels proclaimed at the birth of Jesus in Luke chapter 2 and verse 14, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace to men on whom his favor rests. So the chorus of angels in heaven sang about peace on the earth while the chorus of the people on the earth sang about peace in heaven. And here was the one who was the source of that peace. He had been born in a manger in Bethlehem. And now he's come to this point in his life and his ministry where he's going to fulfill the ultimate purpose that he came to earth for. The Pharisees weren't happy when all this was going on. They objected because they thought it was blasphemy. They told Jesus to rebuke his disciples in verse 40. He answered, I tell you, if they were to keep silent, the stones would cry out. Now, this idea of the stones or the rocks crying out in praise is powerful imagery. Several thoughts came to my mind as I was working through this passage, and I want to share those with you. First of all, some Bible scholars think that there's an inference in the passage to the crumbling of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple that would come later on, and specifically the rubble of the stones left in its wake after Rome destroyed the city. Now, where does that thought come from? Well, if you focus further into the passage, which we will look at more closely in just a moment, Jesus speaks of this very thing in verse 43 and verse 44. Context is everything in the scripture. And I think here context is important because Jerusalem and the temple would in fact be barricaded, destroyed, and torn down so that not one stone uh, upon another would be left. And that was going to happen in 70 AD, some 40 years later, when Rome barricaded the city and they tore it down and they tore the temple down and burned it. And so there's a connection between the stones crying out in verse 40 and the stones not being left upon another in verse 44, that the rubble would cry out as a testimony of judgment to all who reject the Messiah. And I think the idea of verse 40 referencing what would take place later is a viable one. And then, of course, in the Scripture, the second thought is there are several instances in the Scripture where inanimate objects are personified relative to praise. Let me suggest a couple of those examples. Psalm 114, when Israel came out of Egypt, the sea looked and fled. The mountains skipped like rams and hills like lambs. Tremble earth at the presence of the Lord, at the presence of the God of Jacob, who turned the rock into a pool, the flint into a spring. Another example, Isaiah 55 and verse 12, you will indeed go out with joy and be peacefully guided. The mountains and the hills will break into singing before you and all the trees of the field will clap their hands. Even the stones would cry out. The 
crowds chanted a line from Psalm 118 and verse 26, which reads, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Immediately before Psalm 118 and verse 26 is a comment on how the builders, the leaders of Israel, would reject the cornerstone who is ultimately the Messiah. Psalm 118 and verse 19 says, Open to me the gates of righteousness that I may enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. Does that not sound like the triumphal entry that is being prophesied? And now here he is, the living stone, the stone that the builders rejected, the cornerstone. So when we speak of Jesus the Christ being the cornerstone, what we're saying is he's the foundation of it all. The whole thing holds together because of the Christ. He's the one who has all power and all authority. It's by his blood that we are saved. It's by the power of his resurrection that we will be raised. And he's the cornerstone. And we are to praise him for who he is. A cornerstone being the first stone laid when constructing a building that sets the alignment for the whole building. And we as the house of God, as the people of God, are built on the cornerstone of Jesus. I'd say that faith moves us to exalt King Jesus, and we can exalt King Jesus by praising who he is. Then there's a third point of application, and we find it in verse 41 to 44. We're to believe in King Jesus who saves. As Jesus approached the city and he saw it, the Bible says that he wept for it. I think it was probably as Jesus started the descent there on the Mount of Olives. If you've been there, you can picture it. You can see the whole vista of the city before you. You've seen it maybe in pictures. And when Jesus saw it, he was overwhelmed. And he wept for the city. A tender spirit. For people who should have known him and exalted him for who he was, he offers a lament. And I think the word wept here could well be translated as wailed, W-A-I-L-E-D. Because this is from the depths of his being. As he sees this city, he's seeing a city that was proud and unrepentant. He's hearing the words of religious leaders who were rejecting him, leading a people who, for the most part, were rejecting him. And he's about to tell them about the judgment to come. So he's weeping for the moment. He's weeping for the rejection. He's weeping for the hard hearts. But he's also weeping for the ultimate destiny of these people who would not come to him by faith. G. Kimball Morgan said the cry was that of a frustrated desire he had visited the city with the desire to deliver it from the things of destruction and to offer the things of peace. And yet the spiritual blindness of the rulers and the people were such that they did not discern the meaning of the visitation. And the result was inevitable. There could be no escape from the destruction. As verse 42 indicates, it was hidden from their sight. Jerusalem, which literally means the city of peace, but here was this place that was known as the city of peace. They did not understand who the prince of peace is. They didn't see who the source of peace is. And they're looking for it in other places. 
And as we've already noted, Jesus prophesied that the enemies would build a barricade and surround them and hem them in and the city would be destroyed and the people would be killed and it would be brought to the ground. And there is a literal fulfillment and a spiritual parallel. Both are significant. The literal fulfillment would be in 70 AD, as I've already referenced, in the siege of Jerusalem. The Roman army would capture the city and destroy everything in their path. The Roman army, led by Titus with Tiberius as his second in command, conquering the city that had been controlled by Judean rebels for several years. They would lead a siege that would last for some five months, and it would be overwhelming. That was the physical reality of what Jesus was speaking of. But friends, he's pointing to the spiritual reality of rejecting him and what is to come eternally for people who reject the good news. Josephus, the Jewish historian, described what happened on the physical front. He said, all hope of escaping was now cut off from the Jews. He's talking about the 70 AD siege. Together with their liberty of going out of the city, Then did the famine widen its progress and devour the people by whole houses and families. The upper rooms of women and infants were dying by famine, and the lanes of the city were full of the dead bodies of the aged. The children also and the young men wandered about the marketplaces like shadow, all swelled with the famine, and fell down dead wheresoever their misery seized them. Josephus continues, For a time the dead were buried But afterwards, when they could not do that, they had them cast down from the wall into the valleys beneath. And when Titus, on going his rounds along the valleys, saw them full of dead bodies and the thick putrefaction running about them, he gave a groan and spreading out his hands to heave, called God to witness that this was not his doing. You see... Jesus was telling us about something that was going to happen then, but he's warning us about something that will happen to all who reject him. And we are to believe in King Jesus who saves. Now, I want to make a connection here. Verse 38 quotes from Psalm 118. It's important that Matthew, Mark, and John... Include the people at the triumphal entry using the word Hosanna. Now, if I were just to ask you in a Bible quiz kind of fashion, what does Hosanna mean? Most of you would probably tell me it means praise. That's what we commonly connect it to, unless you know a little bit more. It, it means praise. That's your thought. Matthew chapter 21 and verse 9, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Mark chapter 11 and verse 9, Hosanna. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. John chapter 12 and verse 13, Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So we think about Hosanna often as a declaration of praise, but what it is in reality is a request for salvation. Did you know that Hosanna in the Gospels is a transliteration of Psalm 118 and verse 25, which literally means, Lord, save us. Lord, please grant us success. So it's a request that Jesus would seek and to save the lost. And the cry of Hosanna is to recognize that he is king and he's the only one who can save us. 
He's the only one who can deliver us from judgment. He's the only one who can give us peace with God. He's the only one who can grant us a purpose in the moment. And he wants us to recognize who he is and what he came to do. And this point of application is to recognize that only King Jesus can save. He's the only one that can deliver us. And he's our hope. So we do what he says to do. We praise who he is. And then we recognize that he is the one who can save. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Jesus Christ, the Savior of the world, who has come in power and glory. And he's come to accomplish the work of salvation so that we can be reconciled to God. Friends, he came on a donkey when he entered into the city, headed toward the cross. But when he returns, he'll return as the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Every eye will see him. Some blessed day, he's coming again. And the question is, will we be ready? And if we're ready, have we lived our lives in such a way that we exalt the king? Spire heads together for a moment as we pray. Father, we are in awe of your majesty and your glory. We thank you that you didn't leave us to ourselves, but you sent your son, the Savior of the world, who lived and died and now lives again, that we might be saved and reconciled to you. God, may we be humbled by the fact that the king was willing to come in a gentle and lowly manner and humble himself even to the point of death, death on a cross. As we surrender our lives to you in repentance and faith, I pray that we would exhibit in how we live the humility and the gentleness of Jesus in a way that would draw other people to the saving knowledge of him, that we would boldly warn of the coming judgment and let people know that there's only one way to be saved, and that's through faith in Jesus Christ. Jesus, we await your return. I pray that we'd be ready, that we'd not be like many that were among the crowd that day when you made your way down the Mount of Olives into the city. But we would be well, well prepared and living with a sense of holy anticipation, ready to meet you. I pray, Lord, if there's even one that's heard this message today who hasn't been saved, that right now in these moments, they would understand the, the gospel, that there's good news, that they would turn from their sins and turn to Jesus by faith, repent and believe, and be eternally transformed. 
God, may we as a people be burdened by our need to share this message, to live as a sent people, exalting the King in all that we do. We give this time a closed invitation over to you. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.